North Untapped is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. On Monday, November 7th, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his Education Minister Stephen Lecce blinked. While the standoff between Ford's Conservative government and the 55,000 education workers fighting for better paying conditions is far from over, Ford agreed to rescind draconian legislation that imposed a contract and made going on strike illegal. Ford's fumbled backing down came following reports that QP, the union representing the education workers, was coordinating with other unions to organise a mass protest on November 12th, followed by a general strike on November 14th. A rising tide of support and widespread solidarity from Ontario's labour movement forced Ford to back down. But it wasn't only the labour movement that rallied behind education workers. Public opinion not only agreed that the Ford government had mishandled the situation and treated workers unfairly, but supported other unions walking off the job in solidarity with QP. Indeed, this could still happen if negotiations fall apart again. While some have argued that QP's agreement with Ford was premature, others, including this week's guest, Adam D.K. King, argued that the union made the right call. Speaking to the Maple this week, Adam noted, quote, By returning to the bargaining table, the union no longer faces an imposed contract. I'm Alex Kosh, managing editor of the Maple, and I'm pleased to welcome Adam on the show once again. Adam, what a crazy week it's been. It certainly has. Uh, good to be back. Very glad to have your uh, expertise on this issue as it's uh, proved to be quite, um, I don't know, like there's been several takes on either side of this. So I'm um, looking forward to getting your perspective. Um, so I'm going to note right at the top here that things do keep changing quite rapidly. Uh, there was news just today that QP is not happy with um, another offer that the Ford government uh, put out uh, for a, I think it was a very, very minimal change from their earlier position. Um, So we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, Adam, at the time, as of the time of this recording, like what is the latest in this standoff between education workers and the Doug Ford government? Well, I think, first of all, it's important off the top to reiterate that the Ford government has committed in writing to repealing Bill 28 and returning to bargaining. Now, there's some question about when this will happen uh, and whether or not that bargaining is taking place at the table or in the media. Uh, But those are the commitments as they stand. The questioning around the timing of the appeal, Ford is indicating that he'll reconvene the legislature Uh, next Monday, which seems to me like an unnecessary amount of time to wait. And I think the union would agree. Um, You know, after all, the government managed to cram this bill through in two days by sitting the legislature at 5 a.m. and suspending various rules around debating the bill. The NDP uh, says that it's ready to sit down at any point to expedite the repeal process. Uh, And Ford's likely stalling, I think, to try and cool the situation down, uh, maybe take the wind out of the sails of the union a bit. Um, But I think it is important to to reiterate that the union does have it in writing. So I don't know that there is that much reason for concern that the bill won't ultimately be repealed. I think the public opinion consequences of not repealing or reneging on that commitment would be pretty consequential for Ford and his government. In terms of bargaining, my understanding is that the parties have returned to the table, or at least that the union is committed to returning to the table. Now, supposedly, as you mentioned, the government has made an improved offer, which ups the wage proposals to 3.5% for lower income workers and 2% for higher earners. 
um, which in the previous offer meant those earning um, above $43,000 a year. So not exactly high earners by definition. QP has told the media that they've received no such offer in writing or at the table. And, then, and even if they did, that they wouldn't accept it or recommend it to members. So I think that's pretty unequivocal. They've said from the beginning that they're opposed to a two-tier wage settlement, and they want to talk about dollar increases, not percentages, because of the way that their their members are paid, which I think is a very clear line and um, a very effective way of, of putting the issues. And Ford, as I mentioned, seems to want to bargain in the media over the past couple of days rather than actually get to the table. I would say the jury's out on whether or not that's a good strategy. He's already getting some, some bad media on that. Um, so the question is, can he pull public support back onto his side by doing this kind of you know, media bargaining? Or have his antics basically alienated the public too much at this point? Uh, you know, people simply do people simply want the government return to the to return to the table. I'd say it's it's hard to say at this point, but I would lean toward the public being pretty fed up actually with his handling of this situation. Um, the last thing I want to re-emphasize that QP's Ontario School Board Council of Unions never left the bargaining table in the first place. Ford continues to claim this in public, as does um, the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce. The government demanded that the union withdraw a legal strike notice before it would commit to further bargaining. And that was in late October. And to be clear, that is by definition an unfair labor practice, as defined in both the Ontario Labor Relations Act and the School Board Collective Bargaining Act. So that's a prohibited uh, activity. An employer can be brought before the board and penalized for that. QP refused, of course, that ridiculous and unlawful demand. And that's when Ford tabled Bill 28. So I think that's important to keep in mind is just to keep the record straight. And I think the union tried to do that in its press conference uh, on Monday as well. So as it stands, uh, Bill 28 is set to be repealed and the parties are supposed to return to the bargaining table, though, of course, still some questions about when on both of those. I think many of us outside of Ontario, and I should say this includes myself, um, only began paying really close attention to this situation after Ford really drastically escalated this whole dispute by passing uh, Bill 28, which is the bill I mentioned at the top that imposed this really awful, and I think you described it as an insulting contract and included the notwithstanding clause uh, to make going on strike illegal. Can you give us the broader view of the roots of this dispute, like in terms of the the kind of paying conditions that education workers have had to deal with uh, over the past uh, few years? Like what are the longer term origins of this dispute? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was Bill 28 that really escalated the situation. Um, and it is important to emphasize just how um, unprecedented the Ford's government use of the notwithstanding clause is, you know, using it in a labor dispute. That is, labor law scholars have been speculating for some time about when a government might be bold enough to try this out. Um, but even those who have been speculating were surprised. So as a bit of background, since 2015, the right to strike has been recognized as a charter protected right under Section 2D, which is freedom of association. And this was a significant victory 
for labor. There's no doubt about it. But it also sent employers scrambling for various ways around it. Uh, of course, governments, provincial and federal, uh, conservative and liberal, regularly violate the right to uh, right to strike through the use of back-to-work legislation, for example. And in some cases, charter challenges uh, after the fact uh, end in governments paying pretty significant penalties for those violations, usually in some sort of lump sum payment to union members. Um, in other cases, the violations stand basically on public safety or health grounds, and then bar binding arbitration is considered as a submit as a basically a, a sufficient alternative or remedy. But in this case, Ford went full nuclear by invoking Section 33 of the Charter, the Notwithstanding Clause, which allowed his government to suspend certain charter rights, including free association and expression, for a period of five years under this particular legislation. So this was completely unprecedented. And it meant that the union effectively had no legal recourse, no way to challenge the bill in court or at the labor board. So that's just a bit about the extreme and draconian nature of Bill 28. But as you said, the issues that that underlie this conflict go a lot deeper. So, I mean, to in short, CUPE's education workers have experienced quite astonishing wage suppression over the past decade. So CUPE released a study uh, detailing its members' compensation situation, uh, which I wrote about in my class struggle newsletter at Passage a while back. And the big takeaway was basically that education workers had received an over 10% real wage cut over the past decade, since uh, 2012. Uh, that's in terms of inflation-adjusted losses in wages and compensation. So the previous Liberal government had imposed 0% increases on these workers for several years through a bill that they had, Bill 115. And then that was followed by 1% uh, increases. And then by the time you get to Ford's Bill 124, which is also um, a public sector wage suppression bill, that caps public sector wages at 1% um, annually for three years. So that then held education workers down even further. That brought them from 2019 to 2022. So this round of bargaining. So this would have been their first round of bargaining, basically free from that wage suppression legislation. So Ontario governments had really set up a kind of powder keg of a situation through years of wage suppression and disrespect of some of the lowest paid uh, public sector workers, certainly in education, but really across the public sector. So in response to the, the wage issues that I was outlining, QP was demanding an across the board increase of $3.25 per hour, which the media was reporting as an 11.7% increase, which of course made the union seem unreal and unreasonable. But when you put that in the context of the wage suppression that I've been talking about, it amounts to basically getting workers up to about 1.5% above where they would have been if their wages just kept pace with inflation. So not a huge ask. And, you know, again, these are workers who are making very low salaries. As QP said in its campaign, 39K is not enough. The average education worker uh, member in, in, their, in their union earns just $39,000 uh, per year. And the Ford government was simply not entertaining the union wage proposals at the bargaining table at all. 
Uh, the government initially had offered 2% for workers earning less than 40000 and 1.5% for those earning more. And then following the union strike vote, the government upped those offers to one5 and 2.5% respectively. But at the same time, it was tabling other concessions around sick pay and job security provisions. All the while, the government was doing, even back then, its level best to bargain publicly, essentially trying to paint the union as completely out in left field in the media and, and win support to, to Ford's side. So Bill 28, aside from invoking the notwithstanding clause to preemptively remove workers' right to strike, also imposed a really substandard contract on QP members, more so, I think, than is actually appreciated um, for those who haven't read through the legislation completely. So first of all, unlike most back-to-work laws, where the outstanding issues at the table are usually sent to third-party arbitration, the bill imposed the contract in full. And this was unprecedented and bold. And the provisions in that contract were largely what was left on the table when talks broke down, but not entirely. The wage offer, which is what the media was reporting, was what was left on the table. But beyond that, as the union's lawyer reported during this weekend's um, Ontario Labor Relations Board hearing, the government actually included further concessions in the legislation about things that were never discussed at the table at all. So you had, the union was effectively facing not just an imposed contract, but additional concessions, worse provisions that were never even tabled during bargaining. So I think that's hugely important to consider. I mean, it's it's beyond insulting. It's, it's bold beyond belief. Another important thing to consider is how the bill was used to exempt uh, provisions from judicial challenge, right? That's what the notwithstanding clause effectively allows a government to do, to ignore or override charter rights. And in this case, like free expression and free association, as we all understand. But it was also used to shield the bill from other provincial legislation, um, namely the Ontario Labor Relations Act and the Ontario Human Rights Code. So at first, it seemed odd, and I certainly, you know, my eyebrows were raised. Why is the bill um, shielding itself from challenges on the grounds of, of human rights? But then you think about it, it's because the sector is made up of 70% women. So the, the impacts of the bill would have been hugely discriminatory by gender. So given normal circumstances, with a facing, you know, or facing a contract like this or legislation like this, if it were normal back-to-work legislation, a union would likely challenge that in court on the grounds that it was uh, an attack on women workers. And in terms of bargaining in the, the broader public sector, it seemed very much that the government was seeking to set an example with QP before contracts are completed, bargained with teachers in the four unions that represent elementary and secondary school teachers across the province. They were really trying to focus their attack on the most vulnerable workers in the sector before they take on the marginally more powerful teachers unions. So in fighting back against the substandard terms of the contract uh, and the bill and the use of notwithstanding clause, QP has done you know, a major service to other education workers that are currently in bargaining with Ford and to unions across 
uh, the public sector. In the news conference on on Tuesday, Ford seemed to be trying to to drive a wedge between QP members and teachers, basically saying that if QP members got a better deal, then the government would have to look for savings elsewhere, which presumably that I guess that meant in the form of you know wage moderation for teachers and other you know high high income earners in the public sector. Uh, so workers and unions will definitely have to be on guard for those kind of divisive tactics, but. Um, you know, solidarity fights back. You know, as a result and as a response to Bill 28, we had the threat of a general strike looming um, last weekend. Um, I was actually like looking at my going to go and fly to Ontario to, to cover this because it looked it was like it was going to be a really important historic moment uh, in the labor movement. And indeed it was. And there was a lot of kind of uh, buzz around that prospect. Could you maybe explain for us like how much of a big deal was this? And like, why was this threat uh you know, it seemed like it was powerful enough to force Doug Ford to, to renege, at least on, you know, the worst overreaches through Bill 28. Like, can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, as I've said in a couple of places now in writing, Ford and Lecce managed to do what unions haven't been able to do themselves in quite some time, which is, you know, bring, you know, come together basically around a shared fight and really threaten government and employers with concerted action. Um, as far as we know, the general strike threat was quite credible. Um, to what extent private sector union members would have participated in this is still unclear to me. But I mean, nonetheless, I think enough of the Ontario labor movement were on board to give Ford pause. Union leaders across the public and private sector, as well as labor centrals like the Ontario Federation of Labor and the Canadian Labor Congress, quickly came together and committed resources um, to support CUPE. OPSU's 8,000 members walked off the job with CUPE on Friday, which was you know, hugely important. Um, the BC Teachers Federation pledged a million dollars to CUPE's strike fund. Uh, Unifor offered $100,000. Private sector unions in construction, who had previously endorsed Ford, I think seven of them, came out in support of CUPE and, as I understand it, put pressure on their employers and on the Ford government to walk back this legislation. There was even a public GoFundMe that raised, I think, over $140,000 in a couple of days to support CUPE members. So you know, a really impressive level of public support and, and union solidarity. Again, I do have some questions about how extensive that general strike would have been in the private sector. I mean, you have to keep in mind that private sector union density is only around 15, 16% of the workforce. And, you know, how many private sector unions would, would be going out? Would Unifor be downing tools at every auto manufacturing plant or select plants? Was this supposed to be a one-day process or a protest rather, or something that's ongoing um, was it going to be like the days of action in Ontario in the late 90s, where it was this kind of roving strikes and pickets that moved from city to city? Or was it going to be province-wide and sustained? Like There are a lot of questions about what that general strike would have looked like, which is what in part causes me some hesitation to kind of romanticize how impactful and powerful that general strike uh, might have been. But I think that Ford was susceptible to all this pressure uh, for a couple of reasons. For one, as I said, I think he overplayed his hand. I think that he believed he had the political capital to spend on crushing these workers, more political capital than he in fact 
had. Yeah, the, the PCs have a majority of government and they seem to have largely escaped any meaningful punishment or you know, electoral otherwise for their awful handling of the pandemic. But remember that voter turnout in Ontario's last election was a record low. Ford is governing with a majority mandate, but on a very thin uh, voter base, actually. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think he had nearly the amount of public support that he believed he had. I, it's clear with how many people supported the union um, in, their, in their days of protest. And second, as disingenuous as many of us believe it to be, Ford does seem to think he has good relations <laughs> with some private sector unions. Now, some of these unions, especially the ones in construction, I think are basically treating this relationship in a transactional way. Uh, they like his development plans because it means contracts for their for their members. So you know, think of that what you might. But and Ford's he hasn't really been an outwardly anti-union politician in the style of someone like Mike Harris or even the Tim Hudak, who like ran explicitly on a campaign of cutting a hundred thousand public sector jobs like as hard as ford has been on the public sector he, he's never been that sort of explicit um he, he's really tried to drive a wedge between private and public sector unions and between union members and union leadership but i think on both those fronts he's been actually unsuccessful and this episode has really given him a setback and you know so, which sort of leads me to ask the question, you know, had something similar happened in Saskatchewan or Alberta, would it have played out the same? Would Scott Moe or Daniel Smith or even Jason Kenney before her, would they have folded in the same way? I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, I think in those provinces, more aggressive right-wing premiers might have held firm and maybe faced provincial labor movements actually that were less well-resourced and organized to fight back. And obviously that means that unions and labor movement across the country are going to have to you know, remain on guard for any similar bills down the road. But I think that Ontario is kind of well-positioned actually, where it is susceptible on a number of those fronts. So, you know, he failed to use the notwithstanding clause in a labor dispute successfully. I think that's a huge victory. So you know, one hopes that other premiers are learning that part of the lesson, <laughs> that there is there are political and economic consequences to trying to cram something like this through and violate workers' charter rights in this way. I think that's a really crucial point you made there. That, yeah, like it's not just um, a situation between the labor movement and the government, but there's this kind of political dynamic at play as well. And in the case of Ford, he doesn't have doesn't have a mass base in Ontario, really, despite having this kind of inflated majority, which does not reflect the number of people who actually support him in the province. Um, it is an interesting thought experiment to consider how this might have played out um, elsewhere, where we have governments which, you know, just by sheer numbers do have much stronger mandates than Ford does. Kind of on that point then, like Ford was in a, a pretty uh, precarious situation here. Public opinion was was stacked against him at levels that I <laughs> was honestly uh, pretty pretty surprised by, pleasantly surprised by. So there are some critics who are arguing that QP potentially wasted a really big opportunity here. Um, I'm specifically thinking of this argument that, you know, there was nearly unprecedented union solidarity that was built in a matter of days. 
public opinion was very much on the side of the education workers. You know, these these things don't align very often. So like, why in your view was this the right call by QP at the time they made the decision? So we should just, I want to emphasize that at the time they made the decision, because we've now seen in the past few days, maybe Ford and Lecce, you know, making these other rather bad faith offers in the media. But like at that point on Monday, why was that the right call then? Yeah, there's no question that an incredible amount of of solidarity and power was brought together very quickly. But I think it's more accurate to say that a lot of this is the result of years of organizing within CUPE and the Ontario School Board Council of Unions. So I don't think that's going away anytime soon. In fact, I think it needs to be maintained to continue the fight for a good contract at the table, which is why I'm a little less, I don't know, disappointed, I guess, than some other people about um, there not being an ongoing strike at at the moment. I think that position it rests a little bit on thinking about all this solidarity as just coming together at the last second and not being built on a kind of sustained organizing model over the long term. Obviously, it is difficult to sort of reactivate that level of um, commitment and uh, mobilization, but I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility and um, you know, they, 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 the union maintains its legal strike position and requires only a five-day notice. So that's very important. So the union, in my opinion, made a strategic move by ending the protest and returning to the bargaining table after, again, receiving in writing a commitment from Ford that they would repeal the bill. So in my view, I think that was the right move. Given the emphasis that was placed on repealing the bill during the protest, I think that there wasn't much possibility of continuing the strike further at this point. Had the union stayed out, Bill 28 would remain in force. And I think that is the key question here. Again, this would mean that in the event that the strike was unsuccessful in compelling the government to present a better offer, the terms and conditions that were opposed through Bill 28 would remain in force. There was no other option. Remember, Bill 28 present, prevents any court or labor board, or prevents the union, sorry, from, from challenging it in, at any court or labor board, no access to arbitration, no legal recourse whatsoever. So... I'm not sure that those who are arguing that the union should have stayed out fully appreciate how much of a risk that was. Staying out when you face an imposed contract with no way out is an awful gamble with your members' livelihood over the next four years. And if I were in Laura Walton's position leading that union, I honestly don't think I could subject my members to that level of risk either. Not only this, but had the union lost on the picket line, Ford's government would then be able to say that they successfully used the notwithstanding clause to preempt a public sector strike and impose a collective agreement, you know, signaling again to premiers across the country the liability of that tactic. Right now, Scott Moe or Daniel Smith or you know any of the other conservative lot out there are looking at this and saying, well, maybe I can do that successfully, Ford didn't. If Ford had done it successfully, that's a completely different scenario. By returning to the bargaining table, basically, the important thing is the union no longer faces its imposed contract and has demonstrated, I think, that resorting to the notwithstanding clause has political and economic consequences. So I'm sympathetic 
to the argument that I've seen in a few places that whether or not to end the strike should have maybe been put to the members for a vote. I mean, there's that's certainly a legitimate um, criticism. But in practice, that's really difficult and time consuming to actually set into motion. I mean, this is not like a, a union local of a couple hundred people. It's a it's a central bargaining union with 55,000 members. So I think given, you know, given the range of options or the limited range of options and uh, the logistics of it all, the union no doubt made the right move. Yeah, that's a very compelling case. And like, I, yeah, it's, it's really important to consider, like, despite, you know, all this money that was fronted up by other unions, like being on strike under these conditions would have been very costly for the labor movement. And there's only so long that can go on for. Um, so ultimately, they, they got forward to renege on the worst thing that he was doing. Um, and to be quite frank, like when he spoke about it uh, on Monday, he did seem genuinely rattled uh, and unhappy with how things had turned out. Like, I think this is pretty clearly wh- whether or not is it was the the win that the union movement could have achieved is, is, is up for debate, I guess. But I think there's no doubt that it was a win um, against Doug Ford. And as you say, there's this very strong argument that, that they've now demonstrated to premiers across other provinces that there is a cost to uh, taking this kind of draconian uh, strategy. So looking ahead to the kind of coming days and weeks then, like what happens if Ford continues to negotiate in bad faith and we get back to where we were last week? I mean, maybe that's not an accurate statement because it seems very unlikely at this point we're going to see another version of Bill 28. I mean, who knows? But that that seems improbable. But if, if QP is put in a position where it's considering going on strike again, do you think its uh, position and public support will be weaker next time around if they are put in that position again? Well, one thing I, I think we should maybe emphasize off the top, and this maybe contradicts my own case slightly, but it is something I think to consider, is that because they haven't sat the legislature to repeal the bill, it is technically in force still. So if the union, uh, if negotiations break down or whatever before Monday, theoretically, and the union gets fed up with this, you know, bargaining in the media stuff, uh, they can't technically give their five-day notice yet because the bill still is in force. So they do need it repealed before they can give that five-day notice. Now, as I've said, I think that there would be too much public consequence to him reneging on actually repealing it. But in, in terms of the logistics of actually calling the strike, that is important to keep in mind. They, they, you know, by the letter of the law, can't give their five days until the bill is repealed. So that's the first thing to consider. But the question of public support, I think, is key. The public seems to be fully behind the union. And I think a lot of that has to do with how extreme Bill 28 was. Um, I'm not so sure that level of support can be carried over immediately, given how central the demand to repeal the bill was from Friday to Monday. So if a strike were called, I think you might see some level of public support drop and think like, oh, maybe the union's being unreasonable. But again, I mean, a lot of this comes down to messaging and organizing so it's that's not certain either. now some people suggest that public support is given just too much consideration actually in labor disputes i've heard this several times but i think people who are saying this 
are thinking of private sector strikes <laughs> and it's, school's not a factory <laughs> and winning a strike in education actually does require building a lot of public support and bringing parents and community members on your side. It is hugely important in public sector strikes, but the union in my estimation has been very effective at this. And again, this is not something they just did over the last week. <laughs> They've been doing it for, for a long time. If Ford's government continues with bad offers or these kind of bargains in bad faith, the union can exercise, again, their legal right to strike, and one hopes that they can draw on reserve of public support. I think that was a key part of the settlement on Monday. When I heard that they were going to accept Ford's offer and entertain this settlement, the first thing on my mind was, what does it mean for the bargaining timeline? Do things revert to where they were on October 30th? Does it mean that the union retains its previous strike mandate or does it have to reset the clock and go through this whole provincially mandated process of you know, mediation, no border port and have a strike vote all over again? Thankfully, the answer to all those things is no. <laughs> Basically, things will be as they stood before the bill was tabled, which again, just requires QP to give five days notice if they intend to call a strike. But that that's huge. And that that is a you know a huge win for the union in terms of the contents of the settlement Monday. So you know once the bill's repealed with five days notice, QP can have the lines back up. And uh, given what union leaders said during the press conference, I read this as meaning that other workers, unions, and members of the public will also be there to support QP. I know. I mean, I was on picket lines on Friday, and I intend to be on them again if if it's needed. So. I hope that that same sentiment, you know, is is broad out there. There's also this notion floating around that because the protests ended on Monday that, you know, everything has to be demobilized or everything was demobilized. Of course, there, there won't be a general strike, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that everyone just has to go home. You know, it's maybe not as sexy as having a full general strike, but continuing to organize to support QB education workers at the table is every bit as important as it was last week. Rallies, I think, are still worthwhile. Uh, rally at Queen's Park would be hugely effective. And local bargaining support events, especially for education workers who are in small communities like where I live. Um, I was sh honestly shocked by the turnout on uh, last Friday's protest. Not only the number of members of the public who came out to support, um, but also CUPE members themselves. I had no idea that the local was that big here, or it was that that many people would actually come out and be on the line. So I think that there's a lot still to build on to make sure that the negotiations proceed in a way that secures uh, CUPE a fair deal. And, you know, as much as I've been critical of this, there also is the option of arbitration now. If things go really badly, the union does have the option of um, seeking binding arbitration, which, you know, unions always prefer, of course, to get good contracts at the table, but depending on the proposals that the government offers and the balance of forces going forward, sometimes arbitration can be good for unions. And again, Bill 28 eliminated that option. There was no option for arbitration, just had an imposed contract. So, I think the union does have a number of options right now, and it's certainly better off than it was a week ago. 
coming back to the um the, the topic of public opinion um and this kind of relates i think to what you've been saying about the all this work that the union movement has been doing for years now to kind of build these bridges and, and build up an apparatus for for solidarity for really extreme situations like we had last week do you think there's been a broader shift in public attitudes towards unions more generally in the past few years? Yeah, I, I do think that's true. We see this figure appearing everywhere now about the growth of union support in the United States, that around 68% of people approve of unions, which is the highest since the mid-60s. So unfortunately, there's no polling agency that keeps comparable records here in Canada. But there is anecdotal evidence around that Union popularity is on the upswing. The Starbucks union phenomenon spilled over a bit into parts of Canada with support from the United Steelworkers. Uh, Union certification applications and and general interest in union organizing seem to be growing post-lockdown. You know, as the costs of the pandemic were borne uh, so heavily by by frontline workers. Um, Public sector unions in particular have really learned a lot, I think, over the past several years about about um, building roots in communities and thinking about uh, their members as um, whole workers, to borrow a phrase from labor organizer and author Gene McAlevey. Um, and that's been really vital, I think, to a lot of success in public sector organizing. Uh, union members you know, have many issues other than those that dire- they directly experience in the workplace, like housing, and affordability, healthcare access, all those things. So thinking about connecting these issues to those at the workplace and putting community concerns on the bargaining table, important tactic for building public support, not just in particular bargaining campaigns, but you know, in the long term. There's a whole strategy around this now uh, called bargaining for the, for the common good. Um, and unions across North America have demonstrated just how useful that can be, starting with the Chicago teachers in uh, 2012, and then the LA teachers a few years after, and of course the big red for ed strike wave in the United States, which had a bit of a repercussion here in Canada as well. There was a huge rally at Queens Park right near the end of that. And then, you know, things like demands for nurses and social workers in schools for better housing and other supports for students. All this has been, you know, a huge part of this and really, you know, connecting unions, immediate bargaining issues with communities, uh, broader concerns. You know, certainly strikes that drag on and have an impact on public services can have, you know, unions can have a tough time maintaining public support under those circumstances, which is another consideration in this example. Had this just drug on, what would that mean really for not just public support during this particular strike, but for future rounds of bargaining and education? I mean, you think back to the transit strike in Ottawa a number of years ago, or the the so-called garbage strikes in Toronto in the early 2000s, they had a consequence for for union support with the public. I think many progressive unions and certainly many rank-and-file activists are thinking intensely about how to win public support for union campaigns. Um, And there are even some people looking into this uh, for private sector contract fights. You know, it's trickier in that situation because people depend on those businesses much less, you know, in, not in the same way that they depend on, you know, education and healthcare and things like that. But there's some promise there. So overall, I would see lots of potential to grow um, not only the power of unions, but support for unions across the public. 
yeah and kind of unpacking that a bit more you you um you echoed a similar idea uh, in in the interview you did with uh, scott martin in the article he published for the maple this week uh, you said and i'm quoting here in the long term i hope unions in the education sector and beyond can harness this victory and the organizing it necessitated to push for much more um so can you walk us through like what this might look like in practice and like what victories a kind of rejuvenated labor movement could achieve for society as a whole in like the coming months and years yeah you know, I think the labor leadership in a certain sense surprised itself this week. <laughs> you could see it on some of the faces of labor leaders during that press conference. Sometimes it's good to flex your strike muscle a little bit just to make sure that it hasn't atrophied. <laughs> and that's that's true for leadership as much as it is for the rank and file. You know, they need to see how much power is actually at the base of the labor movement from time to time. Um for me, it immediately raised the question, you know, imagine if the Canadian labor movement could pull something like this off to address other issues that are facing workers. Even if we can find a consideration like that to Ontario, I mean, unions led principally by the um, Ontario Nurses Association have been fighting Bill 124's wage suppression in the courts. Now, nurses in Ontario can't strike. So imagine if unions across the public and private sector came together in the same way that they just did to demand the repeal of that bill, what could they accomplish? Would that be a better avenue than trying to fight this thing through the courts? Now, you can't pull something like this off, you know, every other week. <laughs> it's sometimes it requires the focus of a particular contract fight to actually to, to do this. But I think the events of the last week certainly raised some questions about what unions could compel governments to do if they chose to exercise their power in this sort of concerted and solidaristic way. You know, there's no shortage of issues that are facing workers and unions, provincially and federally. The feds recently ended temporary employment insurance enhancements in September at the very moment that they and the Bank of Canada seem intent on pushing us into a recession and driving up unemployment. What if union members got serious about forcing EI reform on the Liberals from the picket lines, not just through consultation lobbying? <laughs> you know, what could they do? We recently managed to win a childcare program federally, but now you've got several provincial governments hard at work ensuring that for-profit providers can milk the system and limit access? What if the labor movement took on this fight in the same way? You could go on and on. But the issue, I guess, is that sometimes a single contract fight presents you with a, a level of urgency that maybe these other struggles don't necessarily, which is not to say that they aren't immensely important. I just think it might require some rethinking about building the necessary support and uh, base, I guess, within your union ranks to pull something like this off when the struggle isn't as immediate as something like repealing a piece of, you know, egregious labor legislation. But in general, I think the labor movement demonstrated this week that workers still have a lot of power in Ontario uh, and across the country. One hopes that, <laughs> that labor leaders take that lesson seriously and that workers also recognize that much, you know, the level of power that they have themselves. Certainly on the picket line where I was in my community, I saw a lot of people empowered 
energized and, and ready to fight, which was, I have to say, truly inspiring. Um, so I think that's a resource that you don't want to squander. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. Uh, obviously, it's been an incredibly busy time for you and your expertise are in very high demand. So very grateful for your insights uh, to help us unpack this uh, pretty historic moment this week. Um, where can people go? Do you want to remind people where they can go to, to read your work and your analysis on labor issues? Yeah, so the, the best place is to go to um, Passage and subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, Class Struggle comes out every Friday morning. Um, there's a, every other week, there's a, an issue for, that's free to the public. And then following that, a, a, an issue for, for paying members only, um, that's the best place to, to check out my work. And, uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you like as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. And, uh, hopefully we'll uh, speak again soon the next time a big, uh, labor issue flares up. Uh, thanks Alex. Look forward to it. <laughs>